Hey, Dylan Kelly here, host of the Wave Break Podcast. Excited to get into this episode, but first, here's a quick word from our sponsor. If you're looking to grow your business, there's only one way, and that is by building real quality customer relationships. Most marketing software will claim they do this, but they never deliver on their promises, and you need to demand more from your marketing software. And that's where Klaviyo comes in. Klaviyo helps you build meaningful customer relationships by listening and understanding cues from your customers, allowing you to easily turn that information into valuable marketing messages. And that's why 10,000 innovative brands, including all of our clients at Wavebreak, have switched to Klaviyo. Now, What's the secret to building those customer relationships? Tune in to Clavio's Beyond Black Friday docu-series to find out and unlock exact marketing strategies you can use to keep momentum going all year round. Just head over to clavio.com slash beyond BF for more. Link is going to be down in the show notes below. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Waybreak Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Kelly, founder of Waybreak. And if you're new here at Waybreak, we help e-commerce brands stop leaving money on the table with fully managed email marketing. Listen, I get it. You know, growing your business, it's tough work. And at first, you have to focus on acquisition. It's what feeds your business and you need it. You can't build a business without it. But eventually, you know, you get to scale. You get past seven figures. You get past four million, five million a year, you know, maybe over 10 million a year in sales. And your email marketing is still kind of this this thing that's on the back burner. You do enough to get by, but you feel like your email marketing has a ton of untapped potential because it's just, you know, it's a chore. It's on the back burner. It's a chore for you and your team. But at the same time, you know it could be generating more revenue for your business. Now, here's the deal. I get it. It's a lot of work, but listen, I'm going to make it simple for you. I put together, you know, based on my years of experience doing this for e-commerce brands, you know, building email marketing programs for, you know, some of the fastest growing brands in e-commerce and building out programs that are generating, you know, tens of millions of dollars every year. Like, listen, I, I took that knowledge and I distilled it into a simple checklist that you can go download at emailsuccesschecklist.com because the reality is this, without great email marketing, without great customer retention, you're missing out on, you know, seven to eight figures per year of revenue and profit, depending on the size of your business. You know, if you're a smaller business, you know, that's six figures per year of revenue and profit. And like, it's just money that's already in your business, not to mention, you know, the impact that's having on your scale. Like if you want to grow your business from, you know, uh, you know, seven figures to eight figures and eight figures to nine figures, you're going to need to be able to fuel that growth, especially if you're bootstrapped like the majority of our clients. And one great way to do that is with email and retention marketing. And by fueling your repeat purchases, you get a higher lifetime value, which gives you more profit to pour back in the business. And that's what's going to get you to the next level. Like you can spend, you can keep ramping up your Facebook ad spend, but it can only go so far. But when you increase that lifetime value, there's so many new opportunities that allow you to scale your business you know, even faster and to, you know, an even higher 
level. And what's great about this checklist is that it only takes five minutes. So if you download this checklist, like I said, you can pick it up at emailsuccesschecklist.com. You can go through it and in less than five minutes, you'll discover exactly how you can increase your email revenue and stop leaving money on the table. It's it's seriously that simple. You can pick it up at emailsuccesschecklist.com. If you want our team to manage your email marketing for you and just get you the results without having to do anything and like barely having to lift a finger, uh, you can learn more about that at wavebreak.com. You can kind of see our case study, see how we work as well as request an intro call. Um, we'll sync up and see if you might be a fit and and go from there. And so check that out if you haven't already. Link will be down in the show notes. And as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, make sure you subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Uh, We've got an amazing interview today and many more amazing interviews coming along later down in the pipeline that that are really good that you're going to want to pay attention to. But for now, like I said, really good interview today. I'm really excited for this one. Today's topic is this, growing pop sockets to over $200 million in sales. That's right. Today on the show, I'm joined by David Barnett, founder and CEO of a company called Pop Sockets. You might have heard of it. Uh, they were named number two on the Inc. 5000 list uh, back in 2018, and they had a growth rate of over 71,000% over the last three years, which is just like, that's insane. Like, that's not a typo. I didn't misspeak that. Like, that, that's real. And um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're a nine-figure company. It's insane. They're profitable. They've been profitable. And since then, they've continued to grow. And on this episode of the Way Break Podcast, I got David to share all his secrets. And we talked about some things that, like, you know, really have never been talked about on this podcast before. Some some things that are, you know, really interesting and I think are going to help a lot of you guys out. So without further ado, I'm super excited for this one. I know you're going to love it. Let's hop right into it. Thanks so much for coming on the show, David. Thanks so much for having me, Dylan. Yeah, I'm super excited, uh, you know, to talk with you. You've had, you know, a really interesting journey, um, and I'm excited to, you know, peel that back and kind of like, you know, not just get like what happened, but also get your thoughts on it too, and just all the different things you've learned. It's going to be a fun conversation. I'm excited to hop into it. But first things first, like before we dive into that stuff, for the people who don't know PopSockets, can you just quickly explain your company and what you sell? Sure. Uh, we're best known for our flagship product, which is a phone grip and stand. It's a it's a little little button like doodad that that sticks to the back of a phone or a case and expands with an accordion mechanism. Expands about an inch and a half away from the phone, and it's about an inch and a half in diameter. And then it, it enables you to uh, grip your phone. And also use your phone with one hand, so it allows you to get your phone out from the back, get your hand out from the back side of the phone, so that you can uh, negotiate the entire screen there with your thumb. Uh, and then it, it serves as a stand too. It's great for selfies and photos. So that's where we got our start, and we've we've developed and brought to market a bunch of other products too now. Yeah, that's awesome. And so, like, I mean, I, I feel like most people have seen these things around. Um, but how did you get into this? Like, were you an entrepreneur before? What's your story? I was, a, I like to say, a, a greedy little hustler when I was a kid. So an aspiring entrepreneur. Uh, I had had lots of inventions and, and little businesses that I was running as a kid. And then I got distracted by the world of ideas and became a philosophy professor. Uh, and I was a philosophy professor at University of Colorado when I had the idea for pop sockets. Um, initially, it was it was just something to keep my headset from tangling, and then it evolved uh, pretty quickly into something that had more functionality and looked a little more respectable than the the crude 
I, I hate to use the word prototype because when I first built it, it was just for me, but I never intended it to go into mass production. But the crude first model, I should say, that I built for myself from Joanne Fabric just to keep my headset from tangling uh, was just a couple of big buttons glued to the back of my iPhone 3. And then it evolved from there into into these mechanisms that expand and collapse and play a number of roles. Right. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, where's the business at now? If you can somehow share like revenue or how big the team is. Sure. We no longer sell. We no longer show, share revenue. Um, but we, I can tell you, units. Um, I think this year. Geez, I think this. Year, I'd have to check, but we'll sell sixty to seventy million units this year. Holy cow! Uh, we're at nearly three hundred people. We were named the second fastest growing company in the U.S. last year by Inc. Uh, Inc. Five Hundred, the Inc. Five Hundred list with a growth rate of seventy two thousand percent. I think over three years. That's insane. Um, That's so crazy. We definitely went through a. It's not like that anymore. We can't maintain that kind of growth anymore. So. Uh, but we did have a few explosive years. Yeah, that's crazy. And I, th- I, I think that year you guys did over a hundred million that year, right? Yes. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, you're you're blowing past that now, probably. But I think what's really interesting too is like, I mean, okay, so like we can look at those numbers, we look at the growth rate, we look at the revenue, you know, like on the ink list, for example, last year. But I think some things that like people don't know and they don't see in those numbers is like, and these are some things I pulled, but like your house burnt down in the beginning of the business, your 40K in debt in 2014 after raising money and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit about like that, like that side of the story? You know, like everybody talks about like, oh, here's the numbers we're doing now. It's great. Uh, sure. And it looks awesome, but like, what about that other side that you know we don't necessarily see on that Inc. 500 list? Sure, the side. I mean, uh, uh, there were certainly struggles, um, and I can't say there were. Yeah, I mean, a number of years when uh, I had uh, friends and family regularly saying to me, "Come on, when are you going to quit this? Like, how long have you been working on this?" Um, and nothing's happened. Uh, so there was a ton of work that went into it without seeing any results. It's not as if uh, it's not as if it was easy and it was just an instant hit. Um, along the way, my my house burned down right around the time I I um, had the invention. Uh, that was in 2010, fall of 2010. Uh, but it, it turned out to be good for me. I, I was able to use some of the insurance money to to uh, start the business. So I, I lived in an empty. A, a beautiful new house, but it was empty for, geez, probably five or six years, basically. My mattress was on the floor until a year and a half ago, I think, when I bought my bought a frame again for my bed because I <laughs> wow. poured, all, poured all the insurance money into my business. So, um, uh, what else? There was a fire. I mean, I had a, a dispute with my university that would have been horrible for any professor, but for me, it was perfect. Uh, it allowed me to take a year, a year off full time to, 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 to focus on the business. I got some money for leaving the university and going to my business. So things, things that on their face might look, uh, look unfortunate, uh, weren't, weren't so bad for me. They actually turned out to be good things. The fire, uh, that dispute, what else? And then there's certain things that didn't turn out to be so good, like manufacturing issues. So I had horrible manufacturing issues for the first, at least the first year really the first couple of years because there was a year in preparation where I just had defective um, unit, uh, defective units after defective units, shipment after shipment, I should say, of defective product that really, really, really hurt me. Um, 
and I hadn't, I didn't have the kind of relationship with any supplier where I could just ship it back and get, get a new shipment. I would end up paying for it out of my pocket, um, or sitting around with my, uh, my friends and family and replacing 30,000 defective gels from the bottom of these grips, which was not, not an easy task. Yeah, no, not at all. And speaking of that, that kind of brings me to another question I had for you is like, I mean, your product on the outside, you know, seems like one of those that China could easily rip off and copy and just, you know, mass market and, you know, undercut like they have with other products before. And you're still the leader in the space. Like, how are you pulling that off? I was just talking about this earlier with somebody that um, we, we were we were discussing lawyers fees. I mean, we, we spend a lot of money on on lawyers to uh, go after infringers, to defend our patents worldwide and to file new patents. I mean, enormous amounts of money. And the person made a joke about how having a patent is just a chance to sue and be sued. And I said, yeah, there's there's something to that. But in our case, it turned out to be a game changer. I mean, without our patent um, here in the U.S., we would we would certainly not be 300 people. We'd at best be a tiny company struggling to get by, overwhelmed by these these knockoffs that you're describing. It's our patent that allowed us to to put up these defenses at the borders. We have a general exclusion order from the International Trade Commission that tells the the borders officials to confiscate. Um, infringing product. The International Trade Commission issues a handful of these every year, and we were lucky enough to get one. Um, Amazon enforces that general exclusion order that we have. So Amazon is mostly clean. Um, most of the marketplaces are clean. Most of the retailers are clean here in the U.S. And uh, our, our struggles with IP are mostly outside of the country. Ah, interesting. And so, like, I mean, I feel like this is one of those things, like, for most business owners, that's almost like you know, an afterthought in a way, because it's not like, you know, the main driver sales versus, you know, marketing or or whatever you need to get off the ground. Like, when did you start thinking about this? Because obviously, this is super important to your business. And if you didn't take that route, like who knows where you would be? Like, when did you start thinking about that? (laughs) I can tell you exactly when I started thinking about it, because uh, during these disputes, what happens is that we, we, we file lawsuits against infringers, and uh, one strategy is for them to then try to invalidate our patent. That's their only only way they will avoid owing us damages. Then I get involved. And when I get involved, uh, sometimes it turns into these these details. I mean, almost day by day details of what I was doing uh, when I first filed this patent. And even before that, when I was uh, just after I filed the provisional and, and it's called reducing it to practice, like. We needed to know the exact day I reduced that invention to practice with a prototype, but building a functional prototype that met all of the uh, criteria of this provisional patent. It was crucial to one of our lawsuits. So this was in 2010, um, right around the time of that fire um, is is when I started conceiving of the the invention. And then soon thereafter, I met up with an engineer at University of Colorado um, and uh uh, we had a couple conversations. Um, I had a, an accordion, you know, landed on the accordion really quickly as the mechanism and filed uh, soon thereafter, started filing patents. Oh, wow. So you filed I, like right away. I filed right away. What What I think your listeners, a, a question that your listeners might have, which was a big question for me. And in hindsight, uh, you know, I would have done it differently, which is once you file, then where do you file globally? Um, that's where the the expenses start piling on. And and unfortunately, you can't 
you don't get to you don't get the luxury of knowing whether it's going to be successful. The, a deadline comes, and you have to decide: Are you filing in China, Japan, Europe? Before you know whether the product's successful, in most cases, so you're gambling with your money there. It's expensive, and I gambled. I, I went for Europe, uh, Japan, China, Canada, um, maybe a couple places I'm missing here, but uh, I didn't, for instance, file in South Korea. That was a mistake, um, and I did file in India. That was great, but in hindsight, I would have filed more widely, of course, um, for more protection. A lot of inventions fail, though, and then uh, inventors end up wasting their money on all of these global patents that that are never uh, never have any practical value. Right? Yeah. No, that makes total sense. Um, and yeah, that's crazy because I mean, really, like nobody talks about this stuff. I feel like, like, are, are there any resources on it, or do you just kind of like figure it out as you went? Um, there weren't. It's worth it's worth mentioning a second mistake I made. So that one one mistake. Oh, here, let me mention two mistakes. One mistake was not filing in South Korea, for instance. I had no idea how valuable that would have been. Um, two other mistakes that that would be interesting for your listeners. One was that I did not file a design patent. I merely filed a utility patent around basically the func- how how my invention functions. And um, it, a utility patent is broader, so it covers more things than a design patent. And I then inferred that it would be a waste of money to then get a, a narrower patent, a design patent, which just covers things that look like um, uh, look like a, a certain version of, of my invention. It's basically just a, you take a picture of it. If it looks like that, you're infringing with a design patent. So I thought I shouldn't waste my money on that. But it turns out design patents are highly valuable in enforcement. Amazon, customs agents. Um, they'll all enforce a design patent because it's so easy. They just look at a picture, a drawing, and then they look at the candidate infringer, infringing product, and it's easy for anybody to tell whether it infringes. Uh, it's not like that with the utility patent, so it's really hard to get anybody to enforce your utility patent. Um, so that's, that's lesson number one, file a design patent. Uh, and then lesson number two, keep your patent families open. And what that means is that after you, your, your patent is issued, if you do get a patent, you get a certain amount of time to then uh, file something that keeps this alive so that you can continue filing for more patents based in your original mm, documents that you sent the patent agency. Whatever ideas you originally sent them, you can kind of pull from them and file more applications uh, almost forever, right? Indefinitely. So you, you keep it alive and you keep filing these patents I didn't do that either. That was a big mistake um, because what happens is that, you know, several years later, you see what your competition looks like and you see what patents you'd like to have out of your original idea. So then then what you do is you file uh, those patents and you develop a whole family that, that really protects you best. Uh, I'm not able to do that in the U.S. That patent is it's, it's frozen in time. So there's just one patent to come out of that family. Got it. OK, yeah, no, that makes total sense. I know, definitely a lesson learned there. And it's funny because like, yeah, I mean, like we've been saying, it's like nobody really talks about this stuff. And it's just like, if you know, you know, and the people who do know, it's like they had to learn the hard way. So definitely think that's going to help a ton of people. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. I kind of want to shift gears a little bit right now. Let's take a quick break to talk about screwing up. Listen, accidents happen. Maybe you installed an app in your Shopify store and it messed up your theme. Or a CSV import wrecked your product catalog. And there's this common myth that when things go wrong, Shopify can just help you. And they have this magic undo button that they can apply to your account and fix everything. 
But that's not true. Shopify can't do that. So what do you do? Well, you need to use Rewind to protect your store with automatic backups. It's like having your very own magic undo button. And best of all, if you sign up at Rewind.io and respond to any of their welcome emails, because they're a sponsor of the podcast, all you got to do is mention the Waybreak podcast and they'll get you your first month for free. So go check Rewind out at Rewind.io. Okay, so you have this product, you got the initial patent filed, and um, you know you're getting it out there. You you got some kind of like initial scale, you know, selling these things. They're they're kind of, you know, people are liking them. I'm curious, like once you had that momentum in the beginning, like you know, people saw the value in your product and people liked it. Like, what was your like? How did you end up growing the business? You know, from like one million to ten million, and then ten million to over a hundred million. Just like. What does that look like? Because like it just, I, I know for some people, like even me, I look at the outside, I'm like, holy crap, like what what does that even look like? Sure. Um, I mean, I think my my original struggles before it, before it took off, and, and they lasted through that first year. 2014 is when I started selling. So we're finishing our sixth year of business today. Um, uh, those initial struggles, I think, um, are common among uh, startup companies and entrepreneurs. Uh, what happened though, after that, when it really started catching fire, it's just rare. I mean, it was, it was really lucky that I had a product that, um, that spread in popularity so quickly because it's just out in public. So people started seeing these in other people's hands and they would ask, what is that? And then whoever had one would, you know, extol the virtues and give this passionate speech about how great it was and how it changes how they use their phone. It's a life changer. Uh, so we, we ended up having to spend almost no money on marketing the first couple of years, um, no money on, you know, ads, social media. Um, it just spread on its own by word of mouth. Celebrities started getting in, in their hands and showing up in, in uh, magazines, uh, social media. That really helped a lot. Influencers were using them on YouTube. Um, and the struggles we then faced were the lucky struggles. It was the struggles of keeping up with the growth. So we we really right. didn't to, we didn't really have to drive that growth. Things are different today. Internationally, it's it's a lot of work to drive the growth. But domestically, we were fortunate enough to just have it really just exploded. Uh, the retailers came to us for the most part. Um, the business came. So the, the challenge was keeping up with it. And we almost, we almost failed. Uh, we were just overwhelmed in 2016 with business. Uh, we were turning people away from our website, uh, telling them to go to Amazon. We, we just didn't have the capacity to fulfill all the orders. Um, and eventually I hired, kept hiring, uh, you know, more good people to help get this under control, get the operations under control, get our foundation in place, manufacturing, quality control, engineering, all of that had to be put in place pretty quickly. Uh, otherwise, we would have failed. Yeah, I bet. I mean, it's like the amount of, I mean, order volume you guys were going through and are still going through. It's just, I mean, it's insane. I mean, it's a huge, huge problem to solve. And I, I think you touched on a really good thing is like you can't, you know, build a business this big by yourself. Like, what's your strategy around building a team and delegating, especially when you're moving so fast? Because it can be like, mistakes can be made right in that area when when you're moving fast but it seems like what you've done has worked right your fulfillment hasn't broken apart it's still working the company's still growing uh, can you shed some light on that sure early on my strategy i'm sure it's a, a common strategy with startups it was just to hire smart people so generalists um 
I couldn't afford specialists, so I couldn't I couldn't afford somebody who had been a chief marketing officer somewhere or even a VP or something. I could afford basically, uh, you know, college students or somebody who had never been to college. Those were the, the kinds of people I could afford, and I would just try to find smart ones. I really didn't care what their experience was. I just needed them to be problem solvers and motivated. I think that's common with startups because everyone's wearing multiple hats, so you want people that can just figure something out, even if they've never done it before, figure out finance, figure out taxes, figure out shipping. Um, it's all new. So if you get you know three people, then five people, then 10 people, and they're all passionate and smart, uh, things go well. So that's what we did for, geez, the first couple years, I'd say, before I hired what I call my first adult, somebody with business experience uh, who was expensive. And then things transitioned to where I had the money to afford specialists. And we had the need, too. So as we grew, we started to need specialists. So specialists in supply chain, for instance, or order through fulfillment. You actually need a specialist in understanding how to take an order from Target and follow that order through our system, through our partner systems, our logistics partner, through to Target make sure that it, it, it goes through without glitches. That's something that's a little bit more difficult for someone with absolutely no experience to figure out, even though we did have to do that early on too. Um, so my strategy, start with generalists. And then as the, as the company evolved to require departments, specialists, and then we, we also had more money at that point, we could hire people with more and more experience. Uh, and then I could really start delegating as you said, to these people that hopefully were, were, were better at what they were doing than I am. Um, what else can I say? Oh, also just knowing what you're good at. You know, we had to decide early on whether we were going to continue fulfilling our own orders or look to a partner. I had several successful entrepreneurs tell me, control it all on your own. Um, you'll do, you do, you'll do better than anybody else at it. And I disagreed. I, I handed that off quickly to a partner who I think is much better at, at, um, logistics and fulfilling orders and shipping than, than I would ever be. And that was a, a great decision. So we would have, yeah, we would have failed badly without that partner in place at the end of 2016, beginning of 2017. There's no way we could have done what they were doing. They now have 200 and no, probably close to 200 employees, seven days a week, 20 hours a day. Not the same employees working that much, but <laughs> right, right. There, there exists some employee at any time during those uh, times. So they have a massive facility they've scaled out into. They're experts. And I did the same thing with the promotional industry. I found an expert. So big picture, yeah, know what you're good at. Um, focus on that. What you're not good at, certainly contract out to uh, partners. Um and that's okay. You'll make a little less money, but you'll make a lot fewer mistakes too. And then as you grow, uh, you'll start having to hire more and more specialists. Yeah, I love it. And like one thing you said, you know, it's like hire smart people who don't necessarily have the most business experience. Like, how do yeah. you how do you find those people through the interview process? Because I know a lot of people are listening, and you know they're tied up. They're the biggest bottleneck in their business because they're still trying to do everything. Because they don't believe that people can do this stuff for themselves. And then right. they go they go try to hire somebody. It's like, well, I don't even know what I'm looking for. They just go with their gut. They just wing it. And then I mean, you know how that could end up. So, you know, with all the people you've hired, like, what are some things you look for in some of these? You know, 
I guess, quote unquote, young and hungry type, um, you know, job candidates, like they, like you said, they might not have gone to college, but they still are really smart. So like, h- how do you kind of find that out and, and predict that? I guess I try to avoid the typical interview. Um, well, I don't know if it's typical, but it's certainly there is a common interview where you just ask the person, tell me about yourself. What have you done? Give me your history. And the person says, first, I did this. Next, I did this. Next, I did this. Right. You can certainly learn a little bit uh, from that. If, if you're just hiring generalists and you can't afford somebody who has a lot of experience, it's not going to matter much because this person isn't going to have much experience in what you're hiring for. Um, you might learn, though, what kind of personality they have and how ambitious they are, uh, what sort of interests. I found it far more valuable to do two things. One, ask really difficult questions, even if the person can't answer them. For instance, you know, I'd give I remember giving one person a dartboard puzzle. I said, suppose there's a dartboard and with a blindfold, I'm dropping a dart. The dartboard's on the ground. I'm going to drop a dart onto the dartboard has a barrel around it so that it's going to hit somewhere on this dartboard the point that's the center of mass of this tip of the dart. Where, what are the odds for any point on the dartboard that that, tip, that that point, the center of mass of the tip of the dart, is going to land on the point of the dart? Sorry, I didn't put that well. For any point on the dart, what are the chances it's going to be the one that gets hit, basically, by the point, which is the center of mass of the dart? That's a hard question. But just to see people struggle with it and see how they could even begin to start thinking about it, to me, is interesting. What kind of mind they have. Um, and then I'd give uh, writing assignments. I think that's really valuable, too. Send them home with just any kind of questions. I'd ask them, if you're going to get a Ph.D., what topic w- would it be in and why? Um, questions like that so that you can see how they write, how they think. Um, and the smart ones write well. They think well. <laughs> and you can see it. It shows up. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's a great point. And I like that too, because it's not like, yeah, like you said, it's like, Oh, what are your strengths and weaknesses? It's like, Oh, my weakness is that I'm a perfectionist and, uh, uh-huh. I work too much. <laughs> it's like, okay, come on. But no, I definitely like your strategy. Um, that, and your that method. has changed by the way, that what, that was the strategy for hiring the generalist today. Right. We, we, in our interviewing at our company, you know, our questions are, are more around, examples of behaviors so it's a it's a common you probably know it you know a, a common interview style where you say give me an example where you um made a big impact made some decision that ended up making a big impact on your company and then you have them cite these examples versus asking do you like to make a big impact <laughs> right yeah yeah, I love that. And speaking of that now, like, so you made the transition from, you know, just yourself to these generalists to now specialists and, you know, even some like, you know, like you said, you know, industry veterans on the team, like for a person like yourself, you know, CEO of this company, like what does your actual day to day look like nowadays? Uh, I really varies. It's unfortunately uh, cluttered with too many meetings still. So we're, we're always trying to, to tackle our meetings death by meetings culture, which just inevitably happens as a company grows, just more and more and more meetings. So uh, some of those are inevitable, though. So I have meetings with, I don't know, just different groups from marketing, operations, finance, international, depends what what the pressing topic is. Um, And then I try to spend time every week, big picture, thinking about our products, uh, product roadmap, what categories we should be going into, specifically what products we should be working on um, and then our 
uh, growth strategies. So, you know, a lot of focus on our international business. That's a, a an area for you know, has massive potential for growth. We've barely scratched the surface of smartphone users internationally. Um, and then other potential growth strategies too. So uh, new products, new customers, possibly new companies um, that we could either spin off or acquire. Uh, so big picture strategic thinking uh, a little bit each week. And then, uh, geez, a, a lot of just working on day-to-day on -day problems too that pop up. I don't know, Amazon, for instance, maybe is shipping out the wrong product to to people and I get involved for 10 or 15 minutes trying to solve that or our advertising's not working for something or it's just lists and lists of, of very specific problems too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find that like that happens. It's like the more you remove yourself, the more it's like the, the less you're needed, but when you are needed, it's like you're needed for like the worst things in a way, <laughs> you know, it's like all the problems. It's like when you get pulled in, it's bad. Yep. So I'm just curious, like, how do you deal with that? I mean, just thinking like that, like, you know, how do you, I mean, quote unquote, like fight fires? Like, what's like, do you have a process for that? Or just what's your mindset around it? Boy, I've never, I've never, uh, I've never stepped back and thought about what my method is for fighting fires. I try to be as efficient as possible, meaning get as few people as possible involved. So I'm unlikely to call a meeting of 30 people to solve some problem unless it's a massive problem. Um, I try to solve problems without calling meetings. So, you know, on Slack is what we use, Slack or maybe even email. Um, I try to uh, try to give a proposal for solving the problem and I try to extract myself as quickly as possible. So as soon as I, I'm confident that the, the right people are on it and that they're on track to solving a problem, I... I, I pull myself out and uh, just we'll let just them do it. Later, get out of the way and let them do it. What else can I say? All of that, I guess, seems somewhat, somewhat obvious. Um, I guess one thing. I mean, one thing as a former philosophy professor that I do do. I, when, when solving problems, I'm, I'm not one to care much about um, what everybody thinks the solution should be. Um, or, or what somebody, you know, often people say, yeah, well, everyone thinks we should do this. Or everyone says that has zero influence on my decision. I could care less what everybody thinks. Uh, we need an actual reason for solving a problem one way rather than another. Um, and oh, also expertise. You know, if two people disagree and we're trying to solve a problem, one person says, yeah, well, I have 15 years of experience with whatever it is, international uh, I could care less about that too. I'm, I'm always going to just listen to the reasons and whoever has the best reason. Uh, that's what we're going with. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I kind of hit you with that question out of left field, but no, I really like your answer there. Um, cause you know, I, I'm sure a lot of listeners are experiencing that. Like as the business is growing, it's just like, you know, <laughs> the Slack messages pop up like with the sound, you know, duh, 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 duh. I can't make the noise, but you know, it's like, uh Oh, what's this? But no, I think that, that that'll be helpful. And, um, yeah, so we're, we're starting to run out of time here, but kind of want to shift gears a little bit, you know, end on a little bit of a, a, a lighter note, not ask such a deep question, you know, that you have to sure. think about too much, but yeah, I guess just as we wrap up here, um, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, what happened, you know, in the past to get to where you are today, but like, as we wrapped up, as we wrap up, you know, what are you focused on in 2020? I mean, this can be business-wise, this can be personalized. Um, wh where are you headed in 2020? 
2020, um, we are focusing on our, our new swappable ecosystem. So getting the word out, we actually launched it online uh, at the end of last year on our website. So this is a grip that uh, when you collapse and twist the, the, the button with the accordion component, when you collapse and twist it, it just pops off really easily and it leaves the platform uh, on your case or your phone. Now that you pop it off, it's really easy to pop in a different top um, and say, you know, you want a different fashion, for instance, when you go out or you might want something functional. Uh, I don't know, you're going skiing and you want some lip balm. We now have lip balm that you can just pop right in. So it's a grip with lip balm on it. After a day of skiing, you don't want lip balm, so you, you you swap that out for, I don't know, you're going out to a club, you want a mirror, so you can pop one of our mirrors on um, or pop one of our wallets on. Uh, it's, a, it's a whole ecosystem around swappability uh, for function and fashion. And 2020, we'll be uh, launching more products for this ecosystem, so just more things that you might want to carry on the back of your phone instead of in a pocket. Um, or they might interact with your phone. So they may have electronics in them, say, and interact by Bluetooth with your phone. Focus on launching more products for the ecosystem. We also have a bunch of mounts, mounts, excuse me, mounts that are compatible with these that are part of the ecosystem. But also just educating the public on it and letting them understand what the, what the benefits are of this ecosystem. That's the main, main initiative. Also, international growth is the second, second one. Yeah, that's awesome. And that sounds really exciting. It's it's really cool to see how your how, how your products have evolved over the years, you know, from that one um, you know, that one initial prototype like the button that you talked about to I mean, now it's like <laughs> lip balm and mirrors and it's like super handy and useful. Like it's like it definitely feels like the future. <laughs> like, oh yeah. It's just here. So yeah, that's that's awesome. And um, yeah, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Um, before we sign off, where can we go to learn more about you and your company? Sure, popsockets.com. Uh, it, it, it's a great place to go to see all our new products. And there should be an, an about section around, around the company and what our culture is and a little bit about the story. Awesome. I'll, I'll be sure to link that all up down in the show notes uh, below this episode. Thanks so much for coming on the show, David. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Now, listener, before I sign off, stop me if this sounds familiar. Your email marketing is stuck. You feel like you could be doing email better. You're not generating enough email revenue, and you feel like you're leaving money on the table. But you don't have the time to figure email out yourself or, or do it on your own because you have a business to run. Imagine this. Imagine not having to worry about leaving money on the table with your email marketing. Imagine not having to figure out what to send, when to send it, how many emails should look, what automation you need, what segments you need, how often you should be contacting your email list, or just worrying about sending the next email. You don't have to worry about any of that. Imagine having peace of mind knowing that your email marketing is generating sales in good hands. At Wavebreak, we help Shopify stores maximize their email marketing revenue. That's it. We don't do anything else. And we've created a system called the Wavebreak method that, number one, makes you less dependent on Facebook or other marketing channels. So let's say something bad happens. Facebook says, see you later, Shopify store, and they just completely kill your ad traffic overnight. You don't have to worry. You don't have to stress because you're good to go because you have a cushion of email revenue. You don't have to worry about how or what, what your wife is going to do or if you're going to be able to make rent or if you're going to be able to pay people because you have this cushion of email revenue to rely on. Number two, the second thing this does is huge. 
and it's how stores scale from seven figures to eight figures uh, to nine figures. And the secret is repeat purchases. The Wavebreak method gets rid of one-time buyers and increases repeat orders. Number three, it keeps your email list engaged. You don't have to worry about Black Friday and beyond. We'll figure out the ideal amount of times that your list needs to be contacted to maximize revenue, and then we'll execute it for you. If you want to learn more about this system and how we can work together to apply it to your business, go to wavebreak.co to schedule a call with me. And I'll personally send you my calendar link and we can chat one-on-one. Now, I don't have unlimited time to do these calls. I can only do a couple of them per week. So if you want to get your call, uh, go sign up at wavebreak.co for it as soon as possible. And we can talk about how we can work together. Thanks for listening to this episode. Subscribe to the show on iTunes to get notified of new episodes as soon as they drop. 